stealing in as relapse sums above the den. It's hard to know if this will be the Hello and welcome to episode 413 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from Catonsville, Maryland. I am Andrew Brokus. I am solo for the moment, but I will be joined for the interview by Carlos Welch and also by our guest, Shelby Wells. Shelby Wells may not be as much of a household name as some people that we've had on the show, but a quite interesting person in her own right. She was actually one of my earlier followers on Twitter, which is something that we talk about a little bit, but she's been around poker and has been a fan of the game for a long time. She is currently a poker dealer and a, uh, I guess you would call it a serious amateur player, uh, aspiring professional poker player maybe even. Most notable of late uh, for for Shelby is in 2022, she won a trivia contest that got her a seat in the 2022 main event, and she went on to cash uh, 97th place in that tournament for upwards of $70,000, which makes up like 99.9% of her Hendon Mob, although as we discussed, uh, she does actually play a lot of local tournaments that just don't get reported to Hendon Mob, but uh, it, is, it is funny to see the, uh, the, the size of that cash standing out uh, for, for a person who has so few caches on there. And then she played again this year, in the 2023 main event and was at the feature table with Daniel Negreanu. So we talked to her about uh, dealing, about going back and forth between dealing and playing, about getting to play in the main event, getting so deep in the main event, getting to play on the feature table and play with Negreanu, about all these experiences from the perspective of a person who is um, who has been a poker fan for a, a long time. It doesn't feel quite right to call her a poker fan because her, her engagement with the game obviously is, is deeper than that. But yeah, it's, it's a quite interesting conversation and she is a lovely conversationalist. So you have that to look forward to. Uh, I have a little strategy segment for you that also derives from the 2023 main event from I think what's likely to end up being the the most uh, talked about and probably the most significant uh, hand, the, the most significant equity swing uh, of, of that tournament, which we'll talk about in a moment. I do want to encourage you, if you enjoy our strategy segments and would like to hear from Carlos and me, the best place to do that is at patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily. That gets you daily strategy segments, uh, Carlos and I talking strategy, having a good time. I think these are really, we have a lot of fun recording them. Uh, people who are our subscribers, I think, enjoy listening to them in addition to getting the strategy value. Uh, and it's just a big help to the podcast in general. The people are supporting us that way. So uh, please do check that out, patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily. So the strategy segment, the, or the, the strategy hand that I want to talk about comes from the final two tables of the 2023 main event. 
If you've been following the tournament at all, you can probably guess what hand this is going to be. Uh, if you haven't, and you're really concerned about spoilers, even though the tournament's been over for like a week now, <laughs> but uh, I am going to spoil the pretty significant results of a significant hand from the final two tables, so you can uh, act accordingly if that's of concern to you. This hand starts with Joshua Payne, who is in the low jack with pocket kings, with 14 players remaining in the main event. Joshua has 24 big blinds and uh, is dealt pocket kings in the low jack. So he opens for a min raise, which is to 1.6 million chips. Nothing too controversial yet. Uh, the action then folds to Jose Aguilera, who is on the button with pocket queens and about 52 big blinds. Jose three bets to 4.5 million, which is 5.6 big blinds. And then in the small blind with pocket jacks is Daniel Weinman. So the action has already been low jack opens to two big blinds, button three bets to 5.6 big blinds, and Daniel Weinman in the small blind. Uh, Daniel has, I believe, about 35 big blinds to start this hand, and he is dealt pocket jacks. So this is the big spoiler that's coming up now. Um, and I, I would encourage you, regardless of whether you know what actually happens in this hand, to try to think about what do you think is the right play here? I would say maybe even take away the context of the WSOP main event specifically. And just imagine this is any tournament that you're playing. You're at the final two tables and you see this action in front of you. Uh, a raise from a relatively short stack player on the low jack, a three bet from a player with a big stack on the button. You're in the small blind with jacks and 35 big blinds. What is your play here? I can tell you what Daniel Weinman did, which is that he went all in for his 35 big blinds after understandably agonizing it over for a little while. Then it folds around to Joshua Payne in the small blind, who goes all in with his pocket kings. I think there's nothing close about that. Uh, and then Jose Aguilera on the button actually has a decision here as well with the pocket queens. Um, he does cover both players, so that makes the call a little bit easier, but this is not an easy decision for him either. Uh, he does end up calling, and so they get it all in, kings versus queens versus jacks, and Weinman ends up spiking the jack on the turn to uh, make Aguilera pretty short stack to eliminate pain and ultimately, a uh, big spoiler alert here, to go on to become the 2023 WSOP main event champion. And I think the most interesting and important decision here is Weinman's decision when faced with a raise in the three bet in front of him, and he's in the small blind. And he has 35 big blinds, which is, I, th I think it's a stack that a lot of people find awkward to play, and it's a stack that could be a little awkward to play in this situation. The main thing that I want to emphasize is I think this is a close decision for Weinman between making a small four bet or folding. I mean, I'm saying this obviously with the luxury of uh, hindsight and not the pressure of playing at the final two tables. Like, I guess one thing I do want to underscore is, you know, I, I'm certainly not trying to like second guess anyone who's actually in this spot. Like I've been not quite this deep, but I've been deep in the main event a few times. Um, I've made bigger mistakes than this when, when playing in the main event. But I think that looking at this with um, the luxury of, of time and distance and sleep, 
I think that the choice here is between call or small for, or sorry, it's between fold and small format. I think calling is not a good option. I think shoving is not a good option. I think shoving is not really a good option with many hands. Uh, Ace King and Pocket Kings are the two hands that I think would benefit the most from shoving. But I think that actually the, the much more than shove, I think Weinman's range mostly wants to make small four bets in, in this instance. And I think that what throws a lot of people here, and I don't want to speak for, for Weinman, but what throws a lot of people in this spot is they don't think they're allowed to make a small four bet. So the action has been raised to two big blinds, raised to 5.6 big blinds, and Weinman only has 35. So if you follow a, a guideline of like, my raise needs to be three times the raise before me, right, that would have you raise into like 16 and a half big blinds, at which point you're putting in half your stack. And so if you felt like that was your only option as well, if I'm going to have to four bet to 16 blinds anyway, then I might as well go all in. I would agree with that. I, I think if that, if that were the only option to, to four bet to 16, then, then yeah, your options are shove or fold. But I think that you actually can make a much smaller raise here. Um, I think that Wyman could have raised to as little as like 11 or 12 blinds, which even raising to 12 does have him putting in more than a third of his stack for what's going to be a pretty large pot. But there, there's a couple things. So I, I think that this guideline of like 3xing the previous raise, it does not work very well for four bets. It's a, a not unreasonable guideline for three betting. It does not work well for four bets. Uh, four bets, especially cold four bet, is just doing something very different than what a three bet is doing. And, and the range often looks quite different. And the SPR in a four bet pot, no matter how small the four bet, and no matter how deep the starting stacks, like once you have a, a, a four bet pot, the SPR is always going to be pretty low after the flop. So even if the stacks are much deeper than this, I still think that you know it, it's, it's an option that's on the table for wine men to make a pretty small four bet. This is because if, if you're... Aguilera with even, let's say, queens, you know, and Weinman makes this small four bet to 11 big blinds and the action's back on you. You're not thinking of sitting like, oh, I'm getting amazing pot odds, trivial call with my queens. No, you're recognizing that 35 big blinds is quite possibly at risk when you have a hand like queens or ace queen. Uh, so quite strong hands that, that uh, Aguilera could have there on the button. And they, they can't think uh, purely in terms of the pot odds that your four bet is offering them. There is also the consideration of what's going to happen after the flop. And the problem with calling with a hand like queens or ace queen or something like that is you're not going to get a lot of new information by saying the flop. You're going to have a very low SPR. And there's a lot of flops where, like, let's say that you flop an overpair with queens you're still losing to the same hands that you were worried about pre-flop. Like the, the kings and aces in your opponent's range, which are a big part, obviously, of, of a cold four betting range, those have not gone away. I mean, I guess you, you get the information that there's not an ace or a king on the flop, but that could also lead to, mis to a mistake, right? Like if, if you're Aguilera and you just call with, with queens, you call with four bet with queens, and there's an ace on the flop, you know, maybe you mistakenly fold to a continuation bet from pocket jacks or king-queen suited or something like that. So there's lots of ways that things can go wrong when you see the flop with such a low SPR. So because the, this small raise is potentially, it, it's certainly opening up the, the possibility of stacks going into the pot, or the likelihood, really, of stacks going into the pot after the flop, you're going to get a, an amount of fold equity that's disproportionate to the amount of money that you're, you're putting into the risk, uh, sorry, that you're putting into the pot. You're not going to have room to fold to a shove from Payne, who was the original raiser, who only had 24 blinds. Like, once you put in 11, you are calling it off with any with anything that you forbet against him. But you can actually have a range, if you're Weinman, where you make it 11 big blinds, and you fold 
old if Aguilera shoves for 35. More importantly, if you're lineman, you can have a range that makes it 11 and folds if both players go all in, which is what ends up happening here. And jacks is the hand that you would want to fold in that situation. In fact, aces is probably the only hand you would want to call with in that situation. And that's because ICM is also a pretty big factor here. So the stuff that I was saying before about a smaller four bet size, leveraging the stacks and forcing your opponent to make decisions that aren't just about their immediate pot odds. None of that has anything to do with ICM. Uh, once we once we bring into ICM, once we bring in the idea that tournament chips are valued differently and that winning chips is worth less is, is, is less good than losing chips is bad. Like the the um, money that's already in the pot is worth less than the chips that are still in, in your stack. What this means is that you know, the, the, the origin of this, this idea that people have that once you put in a third of your stack that you're pot committed, at least pre-flop, that you're not gonna put in a third of your stack and then fold. Well, that comes from the fact that once a third of your stack is in there, if you're then facing an all-in, you're gonna be getting at least two to one, often better than two to one to call, which means you would only need 33% equity. Most hands that you would have three bet in the first place or four bet in the first place are going to have 33% equity against whatever range your opponent would shove. So if we were just purely looking at a, at a pot odds consideration, it would kind of be the case that like once you make it 11 big blinds, you don't really have a lot of room to fold to a 35 big blind shove with any any hand that you might have format in the first place. But when we bring in ICM, you can fold because pot odds, it's not, it's not just about how many chips are in the pot versus how many chips do you have to call. It's about what is the cash value to you of what's already in the pot versus what is the cash value of the chips that you will have to wager in order to contest that pot, to continue contesting that pot. So even if you're getting like two and a half to one in terms of the chips, right? There's two and a half times as many chips in the pot as you're going to have to call. The the chips that you are going to have to put at risk in order to call, the last of your chips, are worth an amount of money that's disproportionate to their their value measured in chips. So like the cash value is you know, the, the the odds that you're getting once you convert the the money that the, the chips that are in the pot once you convert that to its cash value and you think about the cash value of the the chips that are still in your stack that you would have to put at risk in order to try to win this pot um, you're not getting two to one so you're not actually priced in even though you've put in you know maybe as much as like sometimes with these icm simulations you'll see um a a solver will put in like half of its stack and still fold to to a pre-flop shove and that's because of how valuable it is to maintain the, the last of your chips so there is actually room to make these small four bets and not be priced in to to call shoves, to have a range that would fold to a 35 big blind shove. And again, here especially, so like Jax is, I, I did, using GTO Wizard, I was able to find a, a model that reasonably approximated this situation that, that Weinman was in. And it was a mix of um, sometimes folding the jacks and sometimes making the small four bet with them, never shoving them. Um, sometimes, sometimes folding, sometimes making a small four bet. Once making a small four bet, it's not folding to a shove from either Payne or Aguilera. However, if both of them shove, then it is folding. So what Weinman can accomplish here, and what would have been useful in this case, except for spiking the, the very lucky jack, um, what would have been useful is is just to hedge against this possibility. And there's, there's one other possibility that's important also, which is that 
if the big blind were to wake up, like if this hand were to get even wilder than it already is and the big blind wakes up with aces, right? So, you know, if Weinman makes it 11 and then the big blind just cold five bets, you know, then again, as as Weinman, you're happy that you only put 11 blinds in there with jacks instead of putting all of your chips in there with jacks. So these are not super likely outcomes. Like the, it's not terribly likely that the big blind is going to wake up with a cold five betting hand. It's not terribly likely that both the original raiser and the button are going to go all in. But when those things do happen, giving yourself the opportunity to get away is worth something. Uh, it's worth a lot. So yes, there is some risk that's associated with making 11 big blinds instead of shoving. Like there are some hands, I mean, as much as I was saying that you get a disproportionate amount of fold equity, there are some hands where if you make it 11 blinds and pain folds, then Aguilera on the button is going to be getting a pretty good price. There are some hands that he'll call with that would have folded if you had shoved. So like there is a cost to doing this. But what I want to emphasize is there's also a reward to doing this. And the reward is easy to overlook because at least when you have pocket jacks, it doesn't come up all that often. Like most of the time, whether you shove jacks or whether you make it 11 big blinds and call someone else's shove, the outcome is the same. But the times when it matters are times like this where there is some unexpected action, where two people go all in and then you're like, oh no. I'm glad I can get away and, and only have 11 big blinds here in, in this pot. So I think that Weinman, if he were to find himself in that situation again, um, that's how I would encourage him to play the hand. And more to the point, since he's probably not listening to this, it's how I would encourage you to play the hand if you found yourself in this spot. Uh, particularly when you're deep in a, in a tournament when ICM is a big factor, but just in general when you're thinking about cold four betting, you should consider using a much smaller raise than I think a, a lot of people do. In, you know, so often the, the solver simulations, we use a raise that's more like 2x the three bet. So, you know, if it's open to open to two, three bet to 5.5, then the four bet could be to as little as like nine. I mean, I've been talking about 11, but it could be as small as like nine or 10 blinds even. So there's room to make some quite small four bets. And that still gives your opponent a difficult decision. The other thing that it does, which is quite valuable, is even if you, you rarely cause the three better to fold with this four bet, what you are still accomplishing is you're often pushing the original razor out. Like there's lots of hands where the original razor, you know, if, if you, if you for instance, were to cold call the three bet, which is really not something you should be doing, especially from out of position. But if you were to cold call the three bet, then the original razor is getting a really good price to call also. But if you make even a very tiny four bet, a four bet that, that hardly ever results in the three better folding, you're still very often going to push the original razor out, and that has a lot of value. You know, even with a very strong hand, like even if you have pocket kings, a, you, it's easy to imagine a scenario where um, Payne has opened with something like ace jack, ace queen, ace five suited, um, Aguilera has queens, and Weinman has kings. And making that tiny four bet still has the effect of pushing Payne off of the ace jack or the ace queen or the ace five suited which is really quite valuable, particularly when you're concerned with, with ICM, you know, pushing out that live ace and then getting to, pot, to play the pot heads up against a pocket pair that you dominate, that's a really, really nice outcome. So there's lots of hands that can benefit from this. Um, obviously, when you have aces, you benefit from making the smaller four bet and inducing some additional action. So there's lots, it, this isn't just about hedging your risk when you have a hand like pocket jacks. I mean, that's different hands benefit from doing this in, in different ways. Even hands that are never fold into any action, which would have to be exactly pocket aces. But even when you do have aces, there are reasons why you benefit from, from making this small four bet. So I just want to put that on your radar that I think this is an, an under-considered option. I think often when people find themselves facing three bets, 
part of what, I mean, it is awkward. Like, <laughs> I mean, you should mostly be folding when the action in front of you is raise and three bet. But I think that part of what makes it more awkward than it has to be is that people, they're, they're, they're handcuffing themselves. They're taking an option off the table that actually is a pretty important option. And they're feeling like, well, if my only choice is make a huge four bet or fold, sometimes or, or or you know the, then they'll put calling on the table and they say well maybe i can cold call because making a four bet or making a huge four bet feels bad but cold calling is, is really undesirable um cold calling is something you should basically never do so with a lot of hands you're tempted to cold call with consider making a tiny four bet instead and if that still doesn't feel good then just fold um, i actually am going to have an article about this hand where I go into more detail and I show some screenshots from the simulations that I'm referring to. Um, that's going to be appearing on the GTO Wizard blog. Um, I'm not 100% sure when it's going to go out. It, it may well be up by the time you're hearing this. You can find that at blog.gtowizard.com. That's also a great way to support this podcast because we are sponsored by GTO Wizard. All right, that'll do it for our strategy segment. Please enjoy this interview with Shelby Wells. Okay, Shelby Wells, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I feel like I've been aware of your existence for a really long time, even though most people, I think, you know, you kind of came to prominence um, in last year's uh, WSOP main event. But um, I, I think you were like kind of an early person that I was interacting with on Twitter. Does that sound right? Yeah. Yeah. I remember fo I followed you for a long time and I've you've popped up in my feed quite often. And I think we've interacted here and there for a while. Yeah, I think it was like, you know, when I first joined, well, I, I joined it because I was on um, PokerStars team online and they like made me get a Twitter account, <laughs> ruined my life. <laughs> but um, I, yeah, I think like early on, it was mostly people I knew. And then I was like, who is the Shelby Wells person? Uh, but you seem to have good taste in tweets. I, I think I you, you were liking the right things, is, is my <laughs> recollection. <laughs> the feeling's mutual. I feel like you're a good Twitter fellow for sure. You put good things on my timeline, not the crazy negative stuff. Twitter can be a lot. Oh, I put plenty of that out there too, but maybe the uh, algorithm just shares the good stuff with you. <laughs> right. Um, so, I mean, I guess you've, you've been a poker fan for for a long time. Like, what's, what's your poker origin story? Um. Well, me and my boyfriend, we used to play like the little free rolls on AOL. That's how I first started getting into poker, just playing for free money. Um, or like my family played little like quarter poker when I was younger but what really made me first starting get, getting into it was um I watched the 2014 main event when Martin Jacobson won mm -hmm. and that's really that main event just like I don't know why but it just inspired me it opened my eyes to what the game is and I just started getting really into it um yeah I've only really started playing a lot more frequently in the last couple years um but yeah, 2014 main event is when I really started. Yeah, it is pretty wild looking at your head and mob, which is like a handful of caches, one of which is for five figures in the main event. I know, it's so crazy. I mean, I have had more caches than that, but I it's just because I just play dailies at my local casino doesn't report to Hinden Mob for the dailies, obviously. So, and that's pretty much all I've had the opportunity to play in my poker career, really. And you play a little bit online, yeah? Um, I've started here and there dabbling just small little micro stakes just for fun. Really anything I put online, it's not money that I'm really expecting to get back. 
I just yeah, play I online to like practice and fun. Honestly, it's kind of the same for me. Yeah. Um, so your local casino is Indiana? Yeah. And it's actually, I don't even, I work there now, so I can't even play anymore. So now the casino I have to play at is um, Hard Rock, Cincinnati. I guess my knowledge of Midwest geography is how far of a drive is that from, from Indiana? It's like an hour and a half, which is why I don't yeah, that's... play as much anymore. Cause just that drive is so annoying after you like grind a tournament for hours and then bust just having <laughs> to drive home an hour and a half is tilting. Yeah. Um, so you're, and you're a dealer at the, uh, is it, is it the, um, the one that's near Chicago in Indiana? No, no um, it's Southern Indiana, like right by Louisville, Kentucky. Okay. But yeah, I deal poker. I just started oh. like a year ago. How do you like that? Um, it's a really good job. I like it. I, since I like poker, it's better than most jobs I could have, but it's also like pretty, can be annoying sometimes dealing rather than being on the other side of the table. Like there are some games where I'm just like, man, I really wish I could be playing here right now. <laughs> so that, that annoyance is more based on your, your desire to be playing rather than like annoying things that the players are doing. Yeah, exactly. Honestly, most of our regulars are nice. I really haven't had any bad experiences. Everybody warned me that once you start dealing, you're going to encounter the worst people, but I've actually find that most poker players are not like, bad i mean i haven't had any remarkable experience since i've started dealing that's great because i've seen young women kind of get the worst of it in the box as well yeah i know it's out there for sure but i really haven't had any bad times and i started dealing like i had been dealing for two months and then i had my deep run in the main and i wish if it had been like 150 i probably would have quit <laughs> 70 just wasn't enough for me to quit <laughs> I wish I could have been able to play locally more. Patrick Leonard uh, tweeted something recently that he thought you know, what, one of the best ways to get better at poker was to become a dealer and then deal to like high stakes games with with the best players in the world. Um, I, I guess the second half of that <laughs> doesn't necessarily apply to you, but have you found that um, just, just you know, dealing and, and being able to watch people has improved your poker skill? Um. Maybe as far as reading people and just like when I'm dealing, a lot of the times I do zone out. Like half the time I don't, I'm not paying attention to the hands at all. I guess that's bad if you deal and have the intention of really focusing and trying to learn while you're at work, you probably could, but me, I zone out half the time, but there are a lot of spots where like I'm dealing a hand and I'll just think, obviously not knowing anybody's holdings. I'm like, you should shove right here and, you're going to get folds or <laughs> you should fold because this person clearly has the nuts just reading people. It helps some. I'm impressed you're able to zone out when dealing. I've had a little bit of experience playing in like a self-dealt game and um, it's exhausting. It's just like doing it for, for an hour. I found, I mean, I guess there's certain things that you start to do more automatically, but I didn't even have to keep like keep track of the pot size or, or take out rake or anything. And I still found it just kind of paying attention to the action and everything was um, I, I found it really draining. Yeah, at first it was. And like when I deal PLO, I I don't zone out during PLO. PLO is intense, but I enjoy dealing PLO more because it keeps me more entertained than like one, two, where a lot of our games can be boring sometimes, to be honest, where it's just raise and take it, small little pots, not that interesting. So those are the ones where I zone out for sure. The games yeah. that I wouldn't be playing in either. 
Carlos and I talk about this often because he doesn't really play cash. Um, how how boring uh, no limit games without antis are. Like the correct strategy in those games really is quite tight. Yes, it's super boring a lot. I guess it will help a little bit that the people aren't playing as tight as they're supposed to in those games, but it's still probably still a bunch of small pots, probably a lot of limping. Yeah, the games where people are playing crazy and straddling all in blind and those kind of games are entertaining, but a lot of times it's just super small pots. Nobody's doing anything crazy. Just those ones are boring for sure. Are you more of a tournament player when you are playing? I mean, I love cashing in tournaments, but tournaments are more fun to me. I wish I thought cash was more fun because I feel like cash is seen as the more like prestigious thing. Cash players are, people think cash players are better, but tournaments are just more, more fun to me. I don't know. I like going in, knowing that I can be there. There's a set start time and a set end time. It's better for me also because in cash, if I play for a long time, a lot of t- times I end up punting. So tournaments, it's just fun knowing I, have a set time, a set amount of money that I'm in there with. But yeah, cash is more profitable, obviously. Yeah, and lower variance is why. That, that's the biggest appeal for me. Yeah, just, exactly. I mean, I, know, I guess to, in some ways the variance is, is an upside. Like if you you cash the very first main event you play, but <laughs> in general. <laughs> right. And then busted day one, this one. But So what was what was the story there on, on getting into the main event? You won like a, a trivia contest from, um, was it Nadia Magnus? Yeah, she did a little giveaway on Twitter um, to get more women interested in poker and into the main. Um, So, yeah, she did rounds where, like, she did one riddle where half the people that answered it the fastest moved on to the next round and so on and so forth. And me and another woman named Kristen both won seats. What was the, I mean, aside from, like, excited, obviously, you know, (laughs) what what was your... um regiment i guess for for preparing to play the main event watching a lot of poker listening to poker podcasts um i read some of one of your books i don't really remember what concepts i really gleaned from it but i remember just trying to get my mind focused on poker that's my biggest problem is i think i could have the potential to be pretty good it's just mentally my mental game is not great. I get very negative sometimes, or if I'm not in the right mind frame, I play poorly. When I'm in the zone, I think I can play pretty good. But when I'm not in the zone, I can play pretty bad too. Yeah, I, I was thinking when you said before about you, that you kind of preferred tournaments for having the um, the, the set downside, which makes sense. But in terms of the, like the Tommy Angela thing of being able to quit whenever you want, if you do have those kinds of mental game leaks, you know, tournaments don't offer you that opportunity to just be like, oh, I'm not playing my best. I'll just pick up my chips and, and go home. Right. But that's my problem is that if I'm in a cash game, I'm, you, you I'm don't not do that anyway. up and go home. I'm, yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> that's one thing I need to get better on. Working on my mental game is like my number one leak, I think. So what, what were you expecting when, when you came in? Had, had you been to the World Series at all before? No, that was my first time in Vegas ever. So what, what were you expecting coming in? I don't know. I mean, it was just, I literally almost cried when I walked in and saw like the world series of poker banners and stuff. Like as somebody who's been watching the main for 10 years and somebody who obviously plays low stakes, $10,000 for a tournament is something I never did not seem really within reach for me. So getting to play that, which was like a bucket list item 
and is for a lot of the people that I know that play one, two, $10,000 on a tournament is not something that's really feasible. So getting there and seeing everything, it was like emotional for me because I was, it was a bucket list item for sure. And getting to see it and knowing that I was about to be a part of it was insane. It was so fun. Well, they do a good job of, of pumping you up too with the music that they play. And the... Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> Did you have like poker heroes or people that you were looking forward to um, you know, at least seeing or if not you know, meeting and playing with? Uh, yeah, Phil Ivey obviously is like my number one. Like he's my idol. I love him. He's so just cool. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I didn't really get to play with anybody. Um, I played with Alex Keating on day five, I think. I played with Kelly Minkin. And that's really the only people I got to play with. Playing with Daniel Negreanu this year was crazy. Yeah, I saw that. So, you were on the feature table with him, right? Yeah. So what, what was crazy about that? I Just getting to play with Daniel Negreanu <laughs> is crazy. I mean, at work, everybody's been asking me about it, wanting to know what it was like. It was cool. He was really nice. He wrote me on Twitter afterwards and gave me some advice because I didn't do the best that day. So well, it, it's yeah, tough. Really I mean, nice. to be, to be playing at the feature table, you know, with like if it's already kind of an overwhelming experience for you, and then to know that you're like playing on camera with Daniel Negreanu on top of that—that's a lot. Yeah, it was scary. I was I had a lot of anxiety about it, the lights and stuff, and just knowing I was on camera, I felt like I was in a fishbowl. Like I didn't know where to look or what to do it was just really uncomfortable did you did you feel like having your um whole cards revealed changed the way you played no i wish it did i was playing <laughs> way too loose and if i would have like really thought about what was going on and thought about the whole world is gonna see how you're playing right now maybe you should try and play a little better and not play so loose, that probably would have helped me out. I was opening way too wide from way too many positions, calling way too light. I, I think a part of it is just like, this is the one tournament where you start with so many chips and you just feel like you have like infinite time to to uh, recover those losses. Exactly. I was like, I mean, I can call with this bad hand here because it's one hundredth of my stack. I mean, who cares? I can get it back. But I didn't get it back. <laughs> <laughs> right. Since you've been back in in Indiana, have you had any of your regulars, um, or maybe yeah, like have, have you had any of your regulars like comment on things that they saw you do on the um, feature table? I get a lot of comments about overplaying jacks, and then mm. I've gotten. That's a lot also of a good way to win the main event. <laughs> yeah. right i probably would have rivered a jack if i had called on the turn <laughs> but yeah i've gotten a lot of comments about that and then a lot of people saying oh i saw you you were playing so great you got daniel in pots did you get daniel in pots i did yeah nice that's pretty that was cool winning p big pots off him i mean i had it so it wasn't super cool hands where i got to bluff him or anything but still just playing in pots with him and winning was a cool experience yeah, I think that's a nice kind of confidence building thing of just seeing that these people that that you've um, idolized or seen on TV and are kind of held up legitimately as, as among the best players in the world, but that like they're not that much better than you. You know, <laughs> they're still kind of playing the the same game that you are, and and they're they're mortal and they can lose pots the same way you can. 
exactly. Like I was super nervous, nervous at first, but, um, eventually it just felt like I was playing poker any old day. Yeah. And at first, I mean, I do get into that kind of phase a lot. A lot of women also can probably relate to this where I'm just like convinced myself that people are trying to bully my opens or attacking my blinds or my button. And it makes me start playing badly. Yeah. That's really been my experience of, um, coach i mean obviously a, a majority of the people that, that i coach have been male but i've coached like a fair number of, of women of a different different ages and, and levels of experience in poker and things like that and um yeah it, that has been almost a universal thing of you know where i've tried to tell people like i mean i don't have the experience of playing as, as a woman at the table and i'm not going to say that you're like totally wrong that people are going after you but i do know that like most people think that they're getting bluffed more than they are or like take a lot of things personally at the poker table that are not actually personal or, or directed at you and so like i do usually encourage people to try to at least like have some um perspective on that but yeah, my experience has been that that's like a very common concern um i mean among everyone but it has stood out among female uh, people that i've coached yeah exactly it's probably hap i mean it's happening like a small small fraction of the time of what i feel like it is happening like, I'm sure it happens here and there, but most of the time it's just they just have a hand where they're going to three bet me or they're going to, I don't know, squeeze. Yeah, my, I always advise people, um, if you can play on ignition, um, it's kind of cool because if you get that feeling, you can always get the whole cards 24 hours later to see if you were actually getting bullied or not. Um, that's like the easy way to find out that it's actually just all in your head. A lot of the times, the hard way is to like, defend because when you defend right. and they go to showdown you realize like oh okay this time they weren't they weren't bullying but those <laughs> other nine times they were and, right and it, yeah it's like you 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 defend like you feel like you're getting bullied so you want to put a stop to it so you it, you end up making calls that turn out to be too loose because you kind of got in your head i see that happen so often yeah i didn't know you could do that on ignition that's cool i haven't played on there in forever yeah it, it definitely helps with allowing you to make the correct folds in spots where you're curious because you know you can just see the cars 24 hours later anyway yeah knowing that you'll still get the information and you don't have to pay to see it exactly what was the journey like last year when, when you did end up going fairly deep in in the main event you know how, how did it start off on on day one i mean i assume you're uh extremely nervous did, did you show up there on time oh yeah i showed up on time i like checked it out the night beforehand, went and found my table and my seat, and then got there like 30 minutes early to go find my seat and make sure like nothing was going to go awry. Um, I was so excited. Uh, day one, I bagged just above starting. And then day two, I got down to 24K. And then I ended up bagging 550K on day two. So wow. nice. <laughs> yeah, thing, the first two days were... You know, I was nervous and day two through like five, I was in the zone. I think I, I was playing really well. I was getting lucky for sure. I was holding in spots where I needed to hold. Um, and it was like when you are a rec player and you visualize yourself playing the main, everything went exactly as how I would like have daydreamed about it. I was just winning huge pots, running over the table, getting lucky, getting great starting hands. My bluffs were getting through. It was just like a daydream those few days. And then day five and day six, 
it's I was tired. I started playing bad. So it was a daydream for a while. And then I woke up. Yeah, they, they call it a grind for a reason. Yeah, it was a lot. You don't think, I mean, I've never played more than a two-day tournament before. So you don't think that sitting there playing poker is going to be that tiring. And then you get there on day five and you're like, wow, I am really exhausted. Because, I mean, your adrenaline's through the roof. You can't sleep when you get home. You wake up too early because I'm nervous about getting back to the table on time. So, yeah, the sleep wasn't good. It was it was a lot, but it was so fun. I would love to make a deep run again. <laughs> um, I, I'm sure there are things you learned, but is there anything in particular that you would point to that you kind of took away from from that experience that has helped you in, in, in uh, other games? I've gotten a lot more patient with short stack play. Um, I ended up busting. It's so embarrassing. I shoved 13 bigs from middle position with Jack seven suited because the tournaments that I'm used to playing 13 bigs feels like, you know, crumbs. That's the danger zone. But in the main 13 bigs is plenty 13 bigs. You still have maneuverability. You don't just have to rip it with any two. Cause you feel like you have to double up. I've just gotten a lot more patient and, um, better about picking my spots when I'm short. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's funny. I, I looked at your, um, whatever like news coverage you got last year and I saw the hand just reported that you went all in with Jack seven suited and got called by Ace King. It didn't say what position you were in. So I was sort of like, I hope she was in the small block. <laughs> yeah, it was, I just, I don't know when it's one of those things where like my hands just moved my chips all in yeah. before my brain could register like, that I should just fold clearly. I, and I had just hit a pay jump and I told myself that I didn't, that I didn't care about pay jumps. But then at that point I was like, I did care about the pay jumps and I just was like, I want to double. It was yeah. A punt for sure. Yeah. I was going to say, it's easy to forget that the structure is so good compared to like some of the dailies you might be used to playing. So I, I can see how you can, get in, you can get into panic mode uh, too early if that's your experience is usually like tournaments where they're skipping so many levels and whatnot. Yeah, exactly. I'm used to super short levels and skipping levels, but I had so much time to just wait for a better, better hand, a better position, a better something than what I did. And on the coverage, you can see the guy in front of me's um, face. When I table my hand, oh, he looks like he had just seen a ghost he was just baffled that that was the hand I had. Yeah, I mean, I think that even even as you said, like, even in those turbos, a, a better the, the way that I think about this is like a better spot is always coming, um, because as you get shorter, it, like more and more hands become profitable. So like if you do, you're not hoping to blind down to like six big blinds or whatever, but if you do, then it becomes profitable to stick it in with a lot of hands. So I always tell people like, there's no reason, there, there's no need to do anything, no matter what the structure of the, of the tournament is, you never want to do anything sort of like panicky or, or that that's not intrinsically plus EV because like, I mean, hopefully you'll get dealt good hands. If you don't get dealt good hands and you keep getting blinded down, it, it will eventually be, become profitable to stick it in with, with bad hands. And you know, as, as you discovered on day two, like no matter how short you get, it always is possible to like spin it, spin it back up again. And part of the way you do that is like, once you do go all in with like four or five blinds, it's just super profitable because of the, the antis and, and stuff like that. So like you will eventually get a good opportunity. Uh, if, if, if you, I mean, that's what I tell myself as much as anyone else uh, if, if you wait for it 
Yeah, exactly. A better spot will always be coming. There's no need to just get panicked and just shove with nothing, even if, yeah, a better spot is always coming. But I mean, I do also know that feeling of um, particularly being like deep in, in the main event and one or two things go a little bit wrong, especially if you had a big stack and it starts to feel like it's never coming back. And, you know, every time you open somebody's three betting and your blinds are constantly getting raised and is it, you know the same stories that we were talking about before. Um, I mean, I've certainly been in that spot as well where you, you start convincing yourself that, you know, nothing is going to happen unless you make it happen. Exactly. That's that's what I did for sure. And after a while, I mean, Jack Seven suited that that can look like the nuts, right? It was. I had been getting so many bad hands; it looked beautiful to me. I was like, "This is as good as it's gonna get," which was not true at all. But in my mind, it looked like aces. <laughs> right, right. Uh, results aside, you know how was how was that experience of um, of getting deep? You know, did did you meet interesting people? Did you play interesting hands? I definitely played some interesting hands and. The experience was just amazing. I mean, I was like afraid of busting day one. So getting to make it to day six was just crazy to me. The fact that I even got to be there at all, getting to see all the people. I mean, that was my first time in Vegas ever. So everything about it was just an amazing experience for somebody who's loved poker for so long. You know, your first main event, getting to make it to day six was super cool. That's the bar pretty high for your second main event though. Yeah, exactly. I was feeling super anxious and pressured because I know, I mean, everybody knows like variance in tournaments, but still in my head, I convinced myself that like if I bust day one, everybody is going to think that I'm terrible at poker and that last year was just a fluke, even though, I mean, obviously tournaments are like that. People are going to bust on day one and that's just how it is. But I definitely put extra pressure on myself. Did you have like non-poker people in your life? Because I've had this experience also where they they think that you're just being humble when you're like, well, I'm not going to go deep every year. And they're like, oh, you have it in you. You just have to believe in yourself. And they're like, no, that's just not how poker works. Like, did, did you feel the weight of, of expectations of people who you know di didn't have the same background in poker? Yes, exactly. And like last year, after like talking to my parents about poker, I've been making money playing cash for however long and my parents didn't get it. But then I make it a little deep in one tournament. And they're like, oh, this poker thing. Okay, I get it now. And I'm like, dude, this was just, you know, I think, I mean, I played decent, but it's, you know, the luck of the tournament. But I've been making money playing cash for all this time and you all thought nothing of it. And now you suddenly, this random like lottery win, you think I'm good now? Right, and like the consistent cash results are really the much better proof of your skill more so than like, you know, exactly. one, one tournament score. Yeah. Sorry, did I cut you off, Carlos? No, no, I'm just um, smiling at the idea of like how uh, parents and people who don't play poker just can easily get confused by that because they're just looking yeah. at the big number. And also there's interviews, there's cameras, there's like TV and all this stuff around this one tournament <clears throat> where you don't get that stuff around cash games. So, yeah, <clears throat> I can understand why they would be confused by that. Yeah. Being on the feature table this year again, I mean, they just thought that was so cool. Like the two times I've played, I was on TV both times. They're just like over the moon about that. They think it's so cool. What about the boyfriend you started playing poker with? Has he played the main? He hasn't, which actually I'm, we're going to probably go to um, online poker isn't legal here. So we're probably going to 
spend like a week in Michigan or something. That's the closest online poker place to try and saddy in next year. Cause I honestly feel really bad that I've gotten to play twice and he hasn't gotten to play at all. And that's like his dream too. He wants to play so, so bad. Mm-hmm. So next year, my goal is for both of us to saddy in. Did he come with you when you played? He did last year. He wasn't able to get off work this year. He was like, if you make it deep again, I'll come out, but. Bringing you coffee and food and stuff at the table. Oh yeah. I definitely nice. wish um, I would have had somebody with me there this year. It's a lot better to have somebody with you that can grab you things you need or just like be mental support on breaks. Um, he's really good about like talking me down when I, like this year I went from like 140K to 45K in like two hours and not having somebody with me to like talk through hands with or, you know, remind me that 45K in the main is still plenty. I think it was a disservice to myself because like I said, my mental game is terrible. So. Yeah, I I can tell you, Carlos is the goat at this. If if you're going to have somebody on the rail, uh, Carlos is, is the best there is, the best in the game. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun helping to, um, like you said, keep the players um, uh, uh, with the keep the player with the right mindset, yeah. and also just like you know to be an extra set of eyes on the room and just like, um, yeah, it's just it's it's nice to just have someone there with you because, like you said, after a couple of days, you can get pretty tired in that thing. Yeah, for sure. What was the advice that uh, Negranio gave you? He wrote me, he said that I have good instincts, which was a nice compliment, um, but that I was, you know, opening way too wide, uh, playing too many pots, overall just playing kind of sloppy, which is true. I mean, I know I'm capable of playing much, much better than I did. And it just kind of sucks that the main event was the time I play super out of line. But yeah, I think he said that I just have, you know, some leaks that I need to tune up. But I think if I do, I'm capable of being much better. Yeah, I think that kind of stuff is useful, even if you kind of know it's true or it's not anything like groundbreaking for you. Just hearing it from anyone else, let alone from like Daniel Negreanu is useful. Exactly. Yeah. Just hearing it come from somebody who I respect meant a lot. The fact that he even took the time to write me about it all, I thought was really nice. Yeah, that as well. So what does it feel like to to go back to dealing after that? I mean, I, I know you had mentioned like if, if you had uh cashed for, for somewhat more, maybe you wouldn't have gone gone back to dealing at all. But you know, I think people talk about like it feels surreal, even just going back to playing like smaller stakes after you've cashed for like 70k or whatever, and then you're playing a tournament where the top prize is like 5k. Uh, but that you know, to to go back to dealing in particular, what what's the experience there? Yeah, last year it felt super surreal. I felt like I was annoying because, I mean, I would never go out of my way to bring it up, but p- other people were bringing it up at like every table. <laughs> like that, that. Yeah. So I was having to go over the story over and over and over. Um, So I felt like super annoying and like cringy about it. But I mean, it was cool. It felt surreal. Definitely wanted to be on the other side of the table most of the time. And this year, I'm still getting questions about just playing with Daniel and being on TV yeah, just coming home from Vegas, it feels surreal and like I want to be playing poker still. I don't want to be dealing. I want to just be playing nonstop, even though I didn't do well. The only tournament I cashed while I was out there was like the $200 daily at the Orleans. But 
it's still just hard going from poker playing mode to poker dealing mode. Yeah, I could see that. What What is it that people are curious about? I mean, aside from just like playing with, with, with Daniel in general, like what is it that, that the regulars are asking you? I guess just what it's like, because I think a lot of, um, I said this last year too, I think a lot of pros take for granted playing the main events or playing the WSOP at all. I mean, for most people, that's just not going to happen. And I know everybody says the main is the softest event because so many wrecks, but a lot of people are never going to get to play that. They're never going to have $10,000 to just put in a poker tournament. So for a lot of the people I deal to, even like the people who play poker all the time, they just want to know what it was like because they're probably never going to play because that's a lot of money. And I think a lot of the pros take it for granted. Yeah. And I guess people are just, it's sort of exciting for them that some, even someone that they know was right. Everybody's like, I saw you on TV. I saw (laughs) you in Daniel's vlog. I was like, I know her. So (laughs) it's just cool. Just connecting in that way. People having seen me, I guess is the gist of what people say about it. Have you made friends from dealing, you know, not just people that you're like friendly with while you're, while you're there, but like people that you um, see socially or like hang out with, um, outside of poker like is, is it is it that much of a community that you're making like non-poker friends in the poker room not really I mean I have like my poker friends that I play like my home game with who I knew before I started dealing and like random people that I'm just friends on Facebook now but I don't really hang out with any of the players outside of the poker room do you play anything besides hold'em I mean I know you mentioned liking to to deal PLO I um, have started playing some PLO. I'm not good at it, but I love it. PLO is so fun. I prefer playing um, PLO online over Hold'em, aside from tournaments. Online, I'm either going to be playing a tournament or PLO cash. And that's just enjoying the the bigger pots? Yeah. What about like, um, do, do they even spread? like stud games or triple draw or anything like that at your casino? Uh, yeah, we do 30-60 stud. So you, you've had to learn how to deal all the games? Yeah, stud, no limit, and PLO. Okay, so they, they don't even, like you didn't have to go to like a general dealer training school. You were just like getting getting taught the games that your casino spreads? Yeah, I did go to a, like the casino has a dealer class that we had to go to before we got the job, but it was you know, stuff I already knew generally just from having played. Was there anything that you didn't know? You know, that you were sort of surprised like, oh, dealers have to pay attention to this. That didn't occur to me. Yeah, I actually was surprised at like the amount of, I can't think of anything in particular, but just the amount of little rules that I didn't know. And it, it's your responsibility to enforce those things? Yeah. Have you had to deal with situations? Um, I guess people call it like maintaining control of the table or, or something like that, but just kind of, when people are like arguing about rules or, or that kind of thing, like, is, is that a situation that you've had to oversee? Yeah, people definitely will argue sometimes or like question my, I guess like a dealer's authority. Just if I say what the raise has to be, if somebody put out enough to where it's got to be a raise and they'll try and argue. And I'm like, no, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> I've been at the table and, and certain players 
they perk up when something like that happens because it's, it, it almost feels like that was their whole goal for coming to the casino was <laughs> to argue about rules. Yes, they get excited <laughs> trying to like, but actually. <laughs> <laughs> so often. I see that so often. Yeah. It's actually, I don't really mind it though because I like being able to be like, no, actually, you're wrong and I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's a fun part. <laughs> How do you, I mean, other than just, just being right, like what, what strategies do you have for, um, when, when things are getting like tense at, at the, so like I, I've sometimes seen usually like larger male dealers who can be kind of like physically in, intimidating and like tell someone to like quiet down or, or stop talking or, or something like that. Um, you know, what, what, what techniques do you have for keeping control of the table? Really aside from people like just trying to question the rules i really haven't had anything crazy happen where i've really had to like take control of the table mainly the only thing is just drunk people going really really slowly (laughs) with that i just you know tap the table actions on you um and that usually does the trick i mean i've not really had anything crazy happen or you had like fights break out or anything no at least not at my table actually there i'm sure there have been fights in the room but not any that I, I've had to deal with. I feel like you're running good. Right? I think so, too. What were you doing um, before you started dealing poker? What was your uh, your work? I worked at Humana. I like did insurance referrals. I don't even know what that is. I, I honestly really don't even know what it is either. I don't <laughs> even know what that is. I was just building referrals for people to go see their doctor. I worked from home. Oh, I see. So you were, I, I thought you meant that you were referring people to, to sign up for insurance, but you're saying like you were providing the insurance for people to like see specialists or that kind of thing. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, it sounds like not the most rewarding work. No, it was super boring. Um, not fun. Working from home also was like, and that was even before the pandem- pandemic. I was working from home for like, five years so it was super isolating I was really excited to get back into working with other people so the job at the boat is nice yeah what what took you so long to start dealing I mean if, if you've loved poker for all that long and, and you didn't find your other job it, it seems to me it would have occurred to you sooner like hey maybe I could deal poker honestly I don't know what took so long um I think a lot of the time it was just me putting off I didn't want to have to stop playing there eventually I just was like the money's good. Um, I don't think poker's panning out for me. So I think it's time to just give it up and start dealing. And now I'm like reignited. I love playing <laughs> poker again and I want to keep playing and get better and give it a real go. I was kind of like over it for a while. And that's when I decided to start dealing. But now I kind of regret it. Yeah, I, I think with as far as uh, away as you are from the casino where you can play um, online, seems like it should be a pretty good option for you, at least to just kind of like scratch that itch and, and get some practice in, or even if you're not, like if you don't need to be looking at it as a way of making money, um, I think it is a, a pretty good option for you. Otherwise, I agree that like the, the money is not going to be great coming out of that. Yeah, I've started playing online a lot more recently. I either do Poker Bros or ACR, but I've been playing a lot more on ACR lately. 
as Carlos said, you should probably look into ignition as well. Those seem to be, I actually can't play on ignition from Maryland. Um, there's a few States where you can't, but if they do let you play from Indiana, uh, everything I've seen is that that's, that's the site that you want to be on. Yeah. I'll have to, I used to play on it like five years ago. I'll have to check it out again. How have you found online poker in, you know, as someone who has so much experience in, in live poker, you know, what's, what's been the experience of, of trying to play more seriously online? I think people are better online. Yeah. It's harder for me to stay focused, honestly, even though I'm getting in more hands, it's still, I've got so many distractions around me. Um, I'd like to get like a legit setup where, you know, I have a dedicated area where when I'm here, I'm playing poker, not mm-hmm. just now. I just have my laptop and I just take it wherever. And it's just willy nilly eating a sandwich at the table. Can't focus. <laughs> So yeah, I'd like to get a dedicated setup and like start really actually trying. Not that I don't try now. It's just, I don't take it as seriously. Yeah. I, I think you're under something there. Uh, I mean, that is one of the, the great dangers of online poker is it just doesn't feel as real for, for a lot of reasons. <laughs> you're not being able to see the people, not handling anything physical, uh, but yeah, anything that you can do to like tell your brain, like, Hey, this is a thing we're supposed to be taking seriously. That's a- yeah, exactly. Um, is there anything that, uh, that we can be helpful to you with? I mean, do you have, uh, I don't know, strategy questions or anything? I wish I would have thought of some, I'm sure I have something, but I can't think of anything right now. Yeah. I I should have given you a heads up. I apologize. I definitely want to, um, record myself playing a tournament and, uh, sign up for that service. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot we talked about that on, uh, on Twitter. Yeah. I definitely want to do that at some point. I think that's the most valuable thing I could do to get better right now. Cause it's just, I really don't have anybody in my life besides my boyfriend, but we take in the same content. We know the same things. I don't have anybody to tell me what I don't know. So I'd really like to look into getting some, I mean, obviously not like super high level coaching, but just something to tell me what direction I need to go. And I really don't know how to get better because right now the extent of the studying I do is watching YouTube videos and just like looking at preflop charts. I don't know where to go from here because I there's got to be some intermediate area between like Sims and all that stuff. I'm not there. Yeah. I'd like to take it a step up past the YouTube videos and charts and everything and start getting a little bit better somehow. Yeah. But I don't know what I don't know. Well, the, um, the, the boyfriend thing is kind of fraught too, I imagine of just like, uh, it, it may, maybe it's sometimes a difficult person to like take advice or, or hear difficult, uh, feedback from. Yes, absolutely. It doesn't work out for either of us. <laughs> Giving advice either direction is not reciprocated or appreciated really most of the time. Yeah. Is, um, is he still able to play at the casino where you deal? Yeah. Yeah. He plays. And are, are you able to deal with him or to deal? <laughs> I meant to say to deal to him, but. No, I can't deal with him at all. But uh, no, I, I I usually just have to skip his table or he has to get up and go get food or something while I'm at the table. Yeah, that seems like the right policy. Yeah. Although I've, I've been at casinos where that is not. The, I mean, as you probably know, uh, poker players, dating dealers is not an uncommon phenomenon. And I've, I've definitely been at tables where uh, somebody's partner was dealing to them. Yeah. Which I guess isn't the end of the world if I know that, that I mean, I guess the, the, the scariest thing is when you don't know that that's, that that's the arrangement. Right. If you're aware of it. Yeah. 
Um, was there anything else that you were hoping to talk about that uh, we didn't know enough to ask you? I think that covers everything. Well, well thank you very much for, for sharing your story with us. I know it's painful to talk about the, the main event that you're no longer in, um, especially if you feel like you have regrets from it or whatever, but I definitely appreciate you sharing the story with us. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me on. Yes, this is great. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. All right, take care. Devotion of a comma light of the fair passage of a bill And who will sign us into law? I know you won't, you won't, you won't, you won't Will you, you won't, you won't, you won't, you won't Will you, you won't, you won't